we wrote this chapter in the book of you are not your child. And I think that's quite helpful. That's probably the one thing that I return to because, of course, I don't think you're human if you don't go through tough times and your children will go through tough times and you will go through tough times and so on. But I think this idea that you are not your child, I am not my child, and particularly as they're older, and to say, actually, you know what, I've given them the information, it's up to them to do what it, and I now need to step back and there's a limit to what I can do, knowing my limits. Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast. My name is Ferina Hefti. I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, amazing people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, which leads to gender inequality and the same stale, mostly male, middle class people leading our organizations. We need to change this. In fact, my hope is that many of you listening to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership positions possible where you make decisions that make our world a better place. Beyond the podcast, I'm the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. If you want support from brilliant, like-minded peers, join our events or find out about our world-class career development programs, then sign up to our monthly newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. You can also apply by 17th of October to our fellowship for ambitious working parents in the NHS and we will open applications in 2023 for our cross-sector fellowship program again. My guest today is Professor Ross Shafran, the author of the book How to Cope When Your Child Can't. We talk about what to do with your big workplace aspirations when your child is poorly, how to make those tough decisions and most importantly how to look after yourself when your child is unhappy. Enjoy the conversation. So I'm a clinical psychologist and professor of translational psychology at the UCL Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health. So I do clinical research in psychological disorders. I develop and evaluate psychological disorders and see if they work and how to help people access them more readily. I also co-director a company called Bespoke Mental Health, in which we train clinicians to deliver the psychological therapies that work. By having global experts who've developed the therapies provide the training directly to clinicians to try and close the sort of research practice gap that there certainly is within mental health and psychological therapies. That's what I do for work quite a lot. And I have three children. They're older now. So they are 16, 18 and 20. First is a boy and then two girls. And what did you use to assume about how to combine a big career, senior career with young children that you don't believe anymore? So I think I'm probably very unthinking, which <laughs> is my reflection on my, I don't really know what I ever thought. So my mum, as many people of her generation, didn't work full time. She did work and she was never very interested in being at home and domesticated, but didn't really have one career she pursued all her life, though towards the latter end of her working life, it was sort of more solidified and she trained as a teacher and helped children with special needs. And I think I just, I just think I didn't think, to be perfectly honest. I don't know why. I suppose a bit like sort of life in general, I thought it would all be smooth sailing, that marriage, I'd have a knight in shining armor. I just thought it would all work out fine. I have quite a positive outlook as a person. And I just thought this will all just fall into place and it will be smooth. <laughs> <laughs> 
And did that materialise, if you don't mind me asking? Unless you believe all the Facebook stories and what's posted on social media and you Photoshop everything, I don't believe anybody's life is truly like that. So I've always been very fortunate I could afford to have some help to support me. And I think that's made a, a massive difference. And I've always been able to allow myself to use my income on what I would consider to be necessary domestic help. So I was very fortunate I could afford nanny. And so we had a nanny grow up for the children growing up. And that made life a lot easier. But it's not been smooth sailing, even with all that support and the ability to commit financial resources to childcare. But certainly, I don't think anybody's life is quite as smooth sailing as social media would have us believe. That's very true. Let's talk about your latest book. What is it about? And what was the trigger for you to start researching this area? So this is a book called How to Cope When Your Child Can't. And it originally had the title, How to Be Happy When Your Child is Sad. And it was the brainchild of a long-standing friend of mine, Ursula Saunders. And she has two children and she's it's publicly acknowledged. I'm not saying anything that she hasn't said before, but they had difficulties with ASD, autism spectrum disorder. And, you know, it was very challenging for her. And she was describing how when she, one of her children refused to attend school, which she had not even known was a thing back in the day, and how difficult and challenging that was and, and how it affected her, but also then how guilty she felt for thinking about her own needs at a time like this. But she describes sitting in a lay-by, waiting for her child to come back out of school, having just sort of spent a lot of time and emotional energy trying to force him in, but knowing he was going to come back out and Googling how to be happy when your child is sad and everything coming back about how to help your child, how to help your child. But nothing about what it's like for you in that situation when you're coping with what is a very, very difficult situation and the feelings of guilt and shame and anger and resentment. And she contacted me and another friend of hers called Alice Wellham, who's a clinical psychologist as well. And we obviously supported our friend. But I'm a researcher and evidence-based. And I said, well, look, you know, these are the strategies that have been shown to work. Try doing some of those. None of them are sort of shocking in there and revolutionary, but in terms of taking small time out for you, making sure that you, you know, you could do some problem solving, talking about stress management, doing some cognitive therapy in terms of the principles of taking a situation and trying to look at it differently and weighing up evidence for and against beliefs. So we had all those sort of psychological strategies that we were supporting with. And and I think what happened is that it sort of said, well, there is a book out there, there is a need to help parents help themselves, you know, the oxygen mask analogy, that actually you're in a better position to help your child if you can take that time for you. And it doesn't need to be a lot of time, but it needs to be some time just to help yourself stay floating when all around you is so very desperate. And for me, this is a really important topic from a quality perspective. So if we look at the number of people who have care and responsibility who get stuck when they have children, and I think if you have a child who's going through a tough time, there is a real possible impact on your work life. And of course, the child you may well choose that the child comes first in that moment. But I think making sure that the knock-on effect on your career, on your happiness is manageable. I think that's a really important conversation to have. And it's very challenging. So in the book, we've got sort of the first section is about talking to parents 
some of whom have had very successful careers, some of whose careers have stalled, some of whom really had to give up because actually if you have a child that is refusing school, how do you go to work? And particularly in the days pre-COVID when you couldn't work from home, but even if you're working from home, it's just practically. And if you can't afford to give up work, but you can't afford, you know, child gets up, it's a no-win situation. And I think in some of the, talking about some of the publicity of the books, some responses of, oh, well, you could afford to give up work, which they said to my friend. And actually she couldn't afford to give up work, but she couldn't go to work. So then you get into sort of massive financial implications of it. And that's when your child, her child is really struggling and not coping, but you have all sorts of, it is all on a spectrum. So an a range. So, so you can have your child who's just unhappy and it bothers you at work. You can have a child who's texting you at school, crying in the school toilets, and you're going to a meeting and what do you do? Do you, you know, help support your child who's sobbing in the school toilets because they found out they haven't been invited to a birthday party, which, you know, is distressing for them at the time and, and so on? Or do you say, actually, I really can't talk to you right now because I'm going to my meeting? Or do you go into the meeting? Do you leave your phone on it? All these sorts of ways in which it's very challenging, no matter whether or not your child's unhappy and happiness is really transient and other people might consider minor or whether or not it really is more significant or whether or not they're being bullied or have an illness or physical disability or anything, or you and your partner are going through a divorce and your child's unhappiness is as a, you know, directly linked to what you're going through and, and the whole family. So all these sort of life situations, actually, how do you carve out some time for you that isn't sort of generic self-care platitudes, but that's actually rooted either in psychological treatment techniques been shown to work or directly linked to other people's experiences and tips that have been shown to be helpful for others. Hmm. And is there a right way of making those decisions? What is a good mother or good father? Should you just leave your phone on and be there for your child and otherwise your child is going to be damaged? Or... So I feel like saying, yes, here's the right answer. You heard it here for the first time. <laughs> the ultimate secret of exactly how to parent your child is just very, very difficult. And, you know, every family has to find their own way. And what might be right for one child within a family may not be right for another. What might be right at one time in your life and for one child may not be right at another and in one circumstance. And I think the general principle of, I think searching for this is the right way can, it will only make you feel guilty because it is trial and error and working out what works for you and having the self-confidence to withstand family pressures telling you you're too soft, you're too hard, you're too this, you're too that. And just to, the trick for me, I think is about using data, I would say that. But actually, when you do have these situations, to make a note of them, to record how they went, to record how you did, so that you can reflect on it and say, actually, you know, I'm looking back and that happened a few, you know, a few months ago, because it does all tend to blur into one. And it can be difficult to think about that. So I think creating your own data set of what happened that you can look back on is helpful. And the principle of if you can be preemptive, so try not to be caught by surprise. We've all just had going back to school. <laughs> so I can catch anybody by surprise how difficult that is, or Mondays for some people. But just knowing what situations are going to be difficult and thinking about what you can do in anticipation even if it's just talking to your partner about what you're going to do and how consistent you're going to try and be with the messaging 
you give your child. All of those things are important to prioritize and view as an investment of time when life is so busy. I mean, that going back to your question of maybe what, what I didn't know, I didn't know how busy I would be. I didn't know how busy my life would be. I didn't know how little time I would ever have for me or to do anything. And maybe that's just me because I do look around and see other people are better at that than I personally am. But it's being busy from morning till night and doing, 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 I think, because there's so much to do. I hadn't anticipated that, but prioritizing, being preemptive, I think, is an investment of time. And when you have a child who goes through something really tough, for them, maybe something that we would objectively see as t- tough or actually subjectively, and you want to reassure them. Is there a good way of reassuring while still saying, well, no, actually, mommy does have to go to this board meeting. I'm really sorry, I can't attend the Harvest Festival. Yeah. So, and this is, again, I think quite a sort of a psychology answer, which is where I think psychology helps, is that there is a difference between assurance and reassurance. So, actually giving your child some information and assuring them I'm going to this meeting but I'm coming back and I will be able to talk at that seems a very reasonable thing to do but when you get into repeating it and repeating it and repeating it then you have to think well what function is that serving is it that they're going to be really anxious without you that they think something's going to happen and you won't be there and then it can become unhelpful because it's not doing the trick of they're repeatedly seeking the same information. So you have to go to your meeting, you have to go to your meeting. And I think that's just how it is, but it is helpful to then say, but I will be able to talk at this particular time. So having some sort of structure can be helpful. And what if you push it too far? So in hindsight, you feel, well, actually, you have done a trial and error, like you suggested, but the child is now really distressed and for two weeks will only talk about how daddy left her when she really needed him. How do you respond to a situation when you have got it wrong? Have you, have you got any examples of people who dealt with that well? Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult because you don't know that even if it happened, you don't know that the alternative would have been any better. I think that's the thing, that sometimes it feels like there is just a no-win and that you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. So if you go into the meeting and they say, Daddy left me, versus if you don't go into the meeting and then that instant but then there's another instant when you're traveling or you can't it's going to happen at another point so I think sort of this sort of perspective is quite helpful that it may just be a no-win situation and you and sort of aiming for oh it's going to be all right they're going to say thank you very much I really do appreciate that you did exactly the right thing you don't just don't get that sort of feedback but I think what's also really helpful in parenting is this idea of ignoring at times but again in a planned and consistent way. So things like, I'm going to spend some time with you, some special time, some individual time, 10 minutes. That's what I'm going to do. And in that time, we'll do whatever you want to do. We'll watch something, we'll play a video game, we'll chat, we'll do whatever you want to do in that time. But then there is this other time when I'm not going to be available because I'm working or because I'm with another child or because I'm actually going to do some exercise or because I have got to get that report (laughs) done tonight because I didn't have time in the day and it's due in. So I think just being very clear. And then in fact, they're sort of going on, well, you did that report and you didn't read my story or whatever it happens to be, just not to give that attention, not to give that fuel and to just ignore it and know that you were doing the best that you could under the circumstances. You explained what was going to happen. You had no choice because the more you engage with it, the more that's getting attention and that can be unhelpful. And 
ignoring it or ignoring that sort of reprimands and the guilt inducing actually you know what there's nothing you could have done so there's no no point in discussing it further and further and further it's done and reflecting on the book and your own life have you ever had moments where you put yourself first put your career first and you were able to feel okay about that so I have a very clear memory of I was at a conference and I was in a conference hotel and I went for a massage I had my phone on because whatever was happening at home and I got a phone call of all the stuff that was happening at home and how awful it was and how could I have gone away and left them and so on and so forth and it was distressing but I had insight that actually I hadn't really abandoned them with nobody I'm sure you know whatever whoever it was and actually you can give too much And this sort of point of which when you really lose yourself and you lose your gear and you lose your friendships because you're giving so much, that cannot be good. I personally do not believe that that is good, either a good model or good for them because I can get irritable if I'm <laughs> exhausted and stressed and, and that's not good for them either. So I think there are just times when I've done what I felt I needed to do for work and it has not gone down well with the family. But I have tried really hard to think I have done the best I can. And this was just one of those decisions that I had to make. And that was that. And what surprised you when you did the research of how people can be happy while children are sad, to use your original so we, title? Yeah. So the reason we changed the title of the book is actually, first of all, I, I think we were all keen not to be hypocrites. And we actually felt that we couldn't really be happy when our child was sad and struggling. But we also felt that we were coping and we defined coping as, as breathing. So no matter what was going on, that actually we were still working and functioning at, at some level. And that made it easier. And I think sort of what really came out of the book, and I think I knew, but it was really sort of an emphasis, is that there really is not one single answer. It isn't one size fits all that you should do this or you should do that. There's a lot of shoulds in people's lives. And I think we were really clean not to have the book add another should, but to just really say that this is very, very hard. This is how some people have coped. This is how psychological research says, you know, some ideas that might help you cope. And Alice's sort of section was on about acceptance, which I'm particularly bad at, about accepting very difficult situations that you can't change. So by nature, I'm a solver. I'm, okay, here's the problem. What can I do? What can I do? And I find it very difficult to say, actually, you know what? In, in this circumstances, there's nothing I can do. There is nothing I can do. And I need to just accept the situation as it is and how to do that positively. And that's where her sort of section is, is very helpful. I recently found out that according to Inside Radio, only one in five of the top charting podcasts are hosted by women. And that's despite 50% of listeners being female. I had no idea it was such an old boys club. So if you are finding that this podcast benefited you in some way, and if you're passionate about gender equality in all forms, then please take a moment to support a female hosted podcast by sharing this episode with a friend, for example, on Signal or WhatsApp, subscribing and giving it a five star rating. Thank you so much for your support. Back to our conversation. Before we came on air, I shared with you that my son had been in hospital, admitted to hospital six times over the past seven months, which obviously is extremely stressful. And at some point, 
I think I just came to the conclusion, like, I just have to ride the wave. And luckily, I'm very lucky that I have brilliant people that work around me who were doing a huge amount to take the stress off me. But yes, I think now you're saying it, the acceptance is probably one of the most important things that helped me through that. I'm not saying it was easy at all. And then I think the other thing that helped me a lot, just on a physical level, was the putting myself first, which was such a shift. So unfortunately, by now, I'm a bit of a pro of staying in hospital with my child. And I've realized that I need to have time away. I'm still breastfeeding, so I tend to want to be there a lot all the time. But actually just going home for three hours and sleeping, even though I know in the next doctor's rounds, they might give him some extra, you know, putting on another machine or something. But just even though that's going on, just go home and sleep is so important. And it was a real shift for me to put myself first. I don't know if that, I mean, yeah, that's, no, that's, that's a, that's a, to put yourself first. In, in, well, <laughs> And that, that, that's exactly right. It's how to cope. And it's not saying that you've said, right, I can't do this anymore and you've left. It's you said, actually, this is something that is going to help me assimilate what the doctors are telling me better to be able to be there, to be able to be more present in the time that I am there. And that's, you know, who could begrudge that or think that that is a bad thing, especially when it's, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And I'm sorry that you're going through such a hard time. Your son's going through such a hard time because it's obviously something that's coming up. You know, it's not going away, is it? And so finding how to manage that. And there'll be times I would think, and you can tell me if it's nice, where you've got the acceptance and that's all fine and that's all sort of sorted. But other times when it's actually harder and you go away and actually you have missed something and you do feel really bad. But on the whole and on average, that's you found a way forward that is a balance and works for you. Yes, that's very true. At the risk of this sounding like a personal counselling session, I had a really a moment that speaks to that. I went on this course about how to grow your social enterprise, which I love, and but I've never been able to go to the face-to-face sessions because it's always on the Monday and it was always on Monday when my child was admitted to hospital, weirdly, probably because he picked up on Tuesday a bug at nursery and then it takes a week for him to get ill. But anyway, so I knew the child had slight problems with breathing, but was still running around quite happily. It was with my, his dad, but then I did go to the course, which was two hours on public transport. And at the time, I then got a, a text from my partner saying he had to ring the ambulance. And, you know, with breathing problems, ambulance, not the best situation to be in and I was I have to say I've never felt so guilty in my entire life now obviously he was totally fine with my partner he could have probably walked to the hospital as well and it turned out all fine in the end but I think that really speaks to what you said that there's no right decision I wanted to go and I know I would have felt really annoyed if I didn't go and the child was fine so I did go but then yes the worst did happen and he had to call an ambulance but I think there's a really strong message that comes from your book is that actually there's probably not a right way of of doing it and you're not always going to be the perfect zen person I certainly wasn't (laughs) no that that's a good example but it's also an example of even though the worst happened it worked out okay that actually if you'd have been there you'd have called the ambulance Mm. right so the other aspect of the book is about responsibility and who's responsible and being able to share some of that responsibility because I think there is there's a tendency, the more you do, the more there is to do. And, the, and you set up expectations around you of actually, I'm not going to go to that course because I need to be here all the time and I will drop anything. And then your partner, then it's unspoken, you have all that responsibility. But actually, the responsibility is shared. And in this situation, your partner was responsible and, and acted accordingly. 
So I think that there's an aspect about sharing some of the responsibility and I think not taking it all on our own shoulders as I need to sort this out. This is all up to me and I'm the only one that can do this. Because as you go on, then of course, nobody else can do it because you're the one that knows how to do it. So I think there is a benefit as well to the wider family system of sharing the responsibility and having everybody involved. Absolutely. And of course, not everyone has a partner and I'm very lucky that. Dean is, is doing that. But I think you're you're absolutely right. I did a podcast interview with Elizabeth Emmons. I think it was the first or third podcast a couple of years ago. And she said that if you start a life admin task on behalf of the family. So, for example, if you start being the person who takes the child to a certain optometrist appointments, then yeah. you're always going to be the one who deals with the optometrist. So be careful what you start taking responsibility for. And I think if you have a child with complex needs, that is quite acutely important because you need there will be a lot of agencies, a lot of people, a lot of experts that you as a family system need to deal with. Yeah. And I think it's true of caring for parents, too. And some people have more people they can share the responsibility with than others. But some people as well are very, it's very difficult to accept help from friends. But people do want to help under these circumstances. And I think when you have, when you're able to accept someone's offer of help, you know that you'll be there for them as well if they need it going forward, even if at this particular phase in your life, it feels unbalanced. So I think just being able to accept the help around you is important wherever it comes from. Was there something that you have changed in terms of how you look after? I don't know if your children have are going through or have gone through tough times, but is there something that you have changed as a result of the book? I'm imagining as a clinical psychologist, you're brilliant anyways at doing all the <laughs> mindfulness, doing lots of exercise and all those general things that people tell us that are good. For mm, us. I'm but very, very bad. <laughs> I'm very, very bad at that. I'm very, very bad at some of those things, I will confess. I think for me, there were a few things. And particularly though, when I started working at Great Ormond Street and started doing some of the parenting work and this idea that actually you can use ignoring and you can use praise and you can use your attention as a way of influencing your child's behavior. I think those are really very helpful techniques for me. But also, I think we wrote this chapter in the book of you are not your child. And I think that's quite helpful. That's probably the one thing that I return to, because of course, I don't think you're human if you don't go through tough times and your children will go through tough times and you will go through tough times and so on. But I think this idea that you are not your child, I am not my child, and particularly as that older and to say actually you know what I've given them the information it's up to them to do what it and I now need to step back and there's a limit to what I can do knowing my limits I think that's quite helpful if you're parenting older children and I think the other thing that's quite helpful is this idea of of boundaries because as I actually drafted the first section and then Ursula wrote boundaries never work for me I've tried boundaries I hate boundaries And then Alice, being the third person, said, well, I think we should have something on boundaries. So I think that just this idea that it isn't one size fits all is really quite helpful. And knowing that actually it's okay to put some boundaries in. For me, not everybody will want boundaries. It's okay for me to step back and say, you know, I'm not my child and I need to separate, but that might not work for everyone. All of those for me were sort of key take home messages from the book for me personally. Interesting. At Leaders Plus, we talk a lot about setting boundaries with work, because if you're very ambitious in your career, you're likely to want to work at midnight. And for some people, that might be right. For others, for many, it probably won't. 
But I like it that you are talking about setting boundaries for your kids. So practically, how do you set boundaries to make your kid's life not completely take over your life? Yeah, so there's some examples in, in the book of families where actually you end up exhausted. So some people like to go to bed at sort of 10 o'clock or maybe 11 o'clock, but actually at some point there is a cutoff beyond which many of us don't function. And it is important to say, actually, you know what? I will talk to you. I will support you. I will listen to you. I will feed you. I will do this. But after 11 o'clock, I need to go to bed. And after that time, I'm not available. And that's massively important for work. And then I'll start again at six or I'll start again at seven. But actually, this is the time that I need to sleep. And it may not be sleep. It may be exercise or whatever it, it happens to be. So those are the boundaries that we had from our book. Although, as I said, my Ursula's didn't find boundaries helpful. Many of our families do find them helpful. But I think at work, one of the things is about setting boundaries about when you will and will not be available to respond to texts. Because I think certainly young people send a text, they expect a response immediately. Well, you cannot be having your phone on at work. It's just not, you know, answering this, that, or the other. I've forgotten my PE kit. I am at work. You know, that sort of manner. And I think, think certainly just, just making that clear. I can be on my phone and I will be able to answer your texts on my lunch break. I will not be looking at my phone and answering those beforehand. If there's an emergency, you know my landline, you'll get through to the secretary. The secretary will come and interrupt my meeting. And I think when you really lay it out like that, then they do understand, at least when they're a bit older, of actually this has to be quite a big deal for me to sort of phone the secretary, speak to the secretary. And there's enough of a barrier there. And then they have to go and get them out of a meeting. So it's not that you're not contactable in a real emergency. It's just not being invited to the birthday party doesn't count as the real emergency that won't wait for you to respond to it in your lunch break. Does that make sense? My- that does make sense. Yep, that makes absolute sense. One challenge that a lot of our fellows mentioned to me is that they sometimes think about their children all the time and the worries the children have at work and then vice versa at home. Yes. Is it? I mean, does this happen to you? Uh, yes. And if yes, how do you deal with that? Yes, it does. So, I mean, you can have boundaries about when to contact, but you can't have boundaries in your head of, oh, I'll think about this then and I won't. And one of the things from psychology is that if you really try not to think about something, it comes up. So, for example, try not to think about a white bear, what's in your head, white polar bear splashing around in the sea. So, as humans, we're very bad really at thought control and that attempts at thought control can really backfire. And that's quite helpful for me in that I've never tried, because I've known that this comes from work with sort of obsessive compulsive disorder where people are plagued by obsessional thoughts. I've known that all my career. And so I don't engage in, in attempts at thought control because I know that it'd be futile and, and would backfire. But I think that's when, for me at least, I think really immersing myself in the task is helpful. And my phone is off. There is nothing that I can do. And knowing when I can do it. So it's a little bit like worry time where people, if you're played by worry, one technique that people can find helpful is the idea, okay, I'm going to worry about it at six o'clock. I'm going to give myself the space to worry about it or to write it down or to do whatever. And just knowing that it's coming, knowing that it's scheduled is quite helpful for some people. So yes, I think telling yourself what you will and won't think doesn't kind of work. Giving yourself permission about when you can think about these things can be helpful and, and trying to immerse yourself in in demanding tasks. But it is obviously very difficult. And if something's happening at work and you're with your kids, it's very hard for it not to affect you. And it's very hard for it not to affect you the other way around because you are, you are a person. So I think, again, just being accepting of that 
and that that will happen at times and happens to everybody. Mm. I'm sure it happens to everybody. Very true. Intense periods in children's lives often force us to reassess what we're doing. And some people make big decisions, for example, stopping work or changing career during a time where the child needs them more. Were you ever tempted to make such big decisions in a time when your child needed you? I think for me, when I had my first child, was a kind of, am I going to be a stay-at-home mum? I went back to work after four months, so it was relatively soon, and I was still breastfeeding and pumping at work and all of this. And I was just like, is this? And I, I was also commuting quite a long way to work, so I was working in Oxford and living in London. So I had this very long commute. I had a cute baby at home. I'd always wanted to be a mum, and I was just thinking why am I doing this? I'm not seeing him. What's the point of having a baby if you're not seeing them? Are you just going to give them to the nanny? All the kind of rhetoric that was out there. And I think for me, that was the most difficult thing. But I needed to work, I think. I needed to work. And I, I wanted to work. I've never, people are very different. So for me, if I'm at home, I never look at the mess around me and think, oh, I need to tidy up before I work. I look and think, oh, I need to work. I can't possibly tidy up the mess. I'm not good domestically. And so I needed to work for my identity for all sorts of different reasons as well. And that was the closest I've come to giving up was or questioning it with them. But as soon as I had a second child, I realized how much harder it was at home, for sure. <laughs> there was even more reason to stay at work. <laughs> but yeah, it was difficult. I appreciate there isn't a right answer, a wrong answer. And when my second child was six weeks old, she contracted viral meningitis. And as a consequence of that, you can lose your hearing. And she failed a hearing test, temporary. And I remember also thinking to myself that if I had a child with special needs and she was definitely needed more time and more input, then, you know, what implications would that have for my career? And I, it's all well and good sort of saying that and supposed to doing it, but I think that would have been a, a game changer for me, potentially, had it been that she had not been able to hear and needed more input. I think it's really difficult to make those big decisions and there's nothing that is right in yeah. any situations. But I really think it's important that we let people make their own decisions rather than expect that if a child is going through something tough, you definitely have to put yourself completely on the back foot. Because otherwise you're just going to be burnt out. If you if work is really important to you, it's important in some shape or form to be able to continue with that yeah. in a way that works for you, even if it's not just right now, but it's looking at in the next five or yeah. three years. And it's important financially because actually it's a big consideration that if you're not haven't got the income how are you going to it's expensive to have a child with special needs actually and sort of wanting to do other things and so having a financial you know finances are a major factor in any decision I think it's not just what do I fancy doing what do I think is better it's many many factors all considered together the child's needs your needs the family's needs siblings needs all of it is very difficult and I think anyone who's listening to that so is going through a tough time supporting their child they should also be just really I know it's easy to say, but I think if there's any way that you can appreciate what you're doing and giving yourself a pat on the back, that's really Yeah, important. so I think, yeah, I think that's definitely true. And so one of the things in sort of the cognitive therapy bit of the book is about this idea that you have double standards. If a friend is doing it, you'd say, oh my gosh, aren't they amazing? They're coping under such difficult circumstances. You know, you wouldn't be critical, but when it's you, you can be very self-critical and very, well, I should have done this and I should have done that. And I, so to apply the same standards to you as you would to a friend is a, a recommendation in terms of trying to have the same consistent standards and not be harder on yourself. And there's also something 
a lot of work on perfectionism and the sort of the tyranny of the shoulds. So I should be doing this, I should be doing that, I should be doing the other. And it's also known as masturbation. I must, I must, I must, I must. And actually that doesn't do anybody any favors because it just grinds you into the ground and thinking about actually what is it that we do all have some musts in our lives, but what are the essential musts and what are the must that we're imposing on ourselves that are actually unhelpful and potentially backfiring by making us so tired and so ground down that we aren't doing the sorts of things that are consistent with our own personal values. Very good. We are coming to the end of our time. So if you can imagine someone listening to this who is going through a tough time because their child is having a really tough experience, what are three practical things that they could do this week to look after themselves and safeguard the chances of still progressing their career? But a tough one to end I suppose I would say, I think one thing you can do is you can download a meme as your screensaver on your phone. So you, some of the people in, our, in the book have got things like this too shall pass as their screensaver. And that can be just a very helpful strategy. I think another, I would search up problem solving. Problem solving is a really good practical way to solve the practical problems that we're all facing and to get it down on paper. And it's an evidence-based psychological technique for, that goes across anxiety treatments, that goes across treatments for depression, that goes across eating difficulties. So problem solving would be my top tip for that. And I think the third thing would really be to just try and have that coffee, if that's what it is, try and go for a walk around the block. And to allow yourself that with knowing that that is putting the oxygen mask on you in order to help your child. Thank you very much, Ross. And where can people find more about you, see the book? Where should they go? So Waterstones or Amazon for the book. It's called How to Cope When Your Child Can't Comfort, Help and Hope for Parents. So that's the title of the book. And it was published by Little Brown. And I'm on the internet. (laughs) If you search me up, you'll find my my research and I can be contacted in that way. Thank you very much, Ross. It was a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you very much and good luck with all that you do and with your family situation too. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you might also like episode 24, where I talk to Dr. Suhana Ahmed about dealing with your own mental health, the mental health of others during the COVID pandemic. And if this episode has been helpful to you and you'd like a practical community to support you, then consider joining the fellowship program on leadersplus.org.uk. You'll get access to inspirational role models who have experience of bringing up kids whilst progressing their careers. You'll get support with practical challenges, for example, workload or saying no, developing your vision or making a plan for your career and family life in a small group setting. You will also access research on what causes career progression and how to implement this practically in the context of looking after young children. And if you have a partner, then there are sessions for him or her as well, should they wish to join. The application deadline for our NHS-specific cohort is on 17th October 2022. Details are on our website and you can apply for our cross-sector open programme in early 2023. There are some hardship fund spaces available for those in financially challenging circumstances. We haven't allocated those yet and will only do so after the deadline. You can register on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash NHS fellowship. Thank you for listening and see you next week.